What's it like for you when you find yourself in darkness? I ask that, kind of joking, but obviously it's a situation we're in right this second. It's not pitch black in here, but how do you handle being in the darkness? I know we all face darkness every day, whether that's just in our homes, you turn the lights off, getting ready for bed. Maybe you're like me, and about 10 o'clock at night, your four-year-old son tells you he thinks he left his teddy bear on the trampoline, and you got to go try to find it in the dark. How do you function through the darkness? Maybe you go hunt or fish and you get up super early in the morning and the the sun's not up yet and you've got to navigate through there. How do you function when it's dark? When I was in Bible college, one of my professors told me this story about uh, going on a trip to Mammoth Cave in Kentucky. And uh, if you don't know, it's like one of the biggest cave complexes in the world. And they got deep into this complex, many twists and turns, way into the ground. And, and uh, at some point, the tour guide just shut off all the lights. And he said it was complete darkness. Because where they're at, light can't work its way down through those twists and turns. And he's telling us this story. And he said, I'd never felt darkness like that. And he said, the tour guide actually said, put your hand up in front of your face. And so he said, I did. I put my hand up here, and he goes, I have no idea how close it was. I couldn't see it. It might have been an inch from my nose. I could, if, if I wouldn't have known my arm was upright, I wouldn't have thought there was something in front of my face. How do you handle darkness? Often, what do we do when we find ourselves in a dark situation? We will fumble around with our phones or, or something like that, and we'll you know, use this tiny little light. And like right now, it doesn't want to come on, but you know, this is what we do, Right? We'll look around on what's right in front of us and, and maybe try to step away around. I do this sometimes on Sunday mornings. I'm getting ready at about 5.30 in the morning, 5.45. My wife's still in bed, so I'm holding my phone kind of like this to look in my dresser drawer so I can know if I've got clothes to put on. But this is what we do, right? We try to find any speck of light that we can find. How do you function in the darkness? My grandpa told me a story one time when he was in the army back in the 50s during the time of the Korean War. And he said that they were uh, out uh, in Alaska. He was stationed up there in the middle of winter where it's just dead darkness many, many hours of the day. And to prove a point of how a little bit of light can make a big difference, they took him out, and, and as they were talking to them, they see this little flicker off in the distance. And come to find out it was somebody lighting a cigarette half a mile away. That tiny little speck could be seen from that far away. We've been in this series the last few weeks called Ripple Effect. And in the course of this series, we've been looking at the miracles that Jesus has... Holy cow, that's really bright now. (laughs) It's a miracle, right? Yeah. We've been looking at the miracles of of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Uh, And before we hop into that real quick, I just want to welcome you. Welcome you into Crossroads if you're here in person, if you're joining us online, if you're visiting, we're glad that you're here. Uh, I do think it's kind of interesting, where are all the KU shirts today? (laughs) You got one, okay. It is red, so it's, it's for the Chiefs too, but... I thought we wore KU shirts on Sundays now. I guess we changed that back. Is, is it basketball season already now for you guys? Or Hey, you know what? I heard about it all week leading up to the game. Okay, so we covered the spread. I can brag. So that's, that's all I cared about. And we're dark again. <laughs> 
I don't know how many of you have ever preached on occasion, but just rule number one, don't ever upset your people in the production booth because they can chase you off here really quickly. So, But uh, we're glad that you're here with us this morning. We are in week six of this series called Ripple Effect, where we've been looking at what Jesus did and, and how it still matters to us, why it still matters to us today. Uh, today's kind of an interesting story because most of these uh, signs that we read about in John are, are pretty short, like 10, 12, 15 verses long in these stories. Uh, we had one that was a little bit longer. Brad, next week, will wrap it up, and the story of Lazarus is, is a fairly long story. Today is an entire chapter. We're, we're going to be in John 9. If you've got a Bible and you want to turn there, um, we're, we're going to get there in just a moment. <clears throat> but this is an interesting story that John shares with us here, because we're going to see the miracle happen very quickly. Like that, That's really quick that, that we get into the, 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 the healing part of this story. The rest of the chapter, like starting in verse 8 through the rest of the chapter through verse 41, it's all about what happens next. So that's kind of how we're going to dive into this, kind of take a little different approach with it this morning. But if you want to follow along, it'll be on the screens if you don't have a Bible. John chapter 9, it starts like this. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? We'll pause for just a second here, a little context. In the Jewish culture, they believed that if somebody was born with a physical deformity or a mental or emotional deformity of any kind, that it was the, the result of, of their parents' sin. Like that was God punishing the parents by having a, a child that was crippled or blind or, or might have had some other issue going on with, with the child. Verse 3, Jesus responds, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so the works of God might be displayed in him. The disciples see a problem, Jesus sees an opportunity. Goes on and says, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. We're going to come back to that here in just a minute. So kind of file that thought away about what Jesus just said there. Verse 6, after saying this, Jesus spit on the ground and he made some mud with the saliva and he put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, and wash in the pool of Siloam. And in the Hebrew, this means scent. So the man went and washed, and he came home seeing. I remember as a kid, this being one of my favorite stories about Jesus, and probably for a really obvious reason, right? Because how many times as kids did you try this one out? You know, like, oh, I cut my arm. Hang on. <laughs> Still there. Sorry, I'm not Jesus. I can't take care of that. We tried it. We tried out, you know, spitting and making mud and rubbing it on each other's faces to see if that would heal anything. Never worked. Don't try it. But, um, you know, it was just... It's such a weird story. Now, in this culture, they believed saliva actually had some healing properties. So it wouldn't have been that crazy for Jesus to do this in this moment. But the story goes on, and this guy goes home, and his neighbors are trying to figure out if this is the guy that they've always known, because they've always known him to be this blind man. And now he doesn't have to, you know, feel his way around. He doesn't have to be led by the hand where he's going. He can see. And... What's interesting is what comes in verse 13, and we'll get to this in a minute, but then the Pharisees show up, and that's where the story really starts to take its turn. But before we get there, we'll just kind of set this up a little bit. We're talking about blindness versus sight, about dark versus light. 
This is a major theme throughout the Gospel of John. I told you this before. John is simultaneously simple and complex. Like in one moment, he's speaking in both the literal and the figurative. And that's what we see throughout his entire gospel, this theme of light and dark. In some cases, like the resurrection account, he'll say it was still dark outside. Well, it's because it was morning. It was dark outside. But it was also a heavy, hard time. Jesus had just died and been put in a tomb, so it's, it's emotionally dark. John's always writing kind of in both of those thoughts at the same time. And he kind of gets to that point right out of the gates, in John chapter 1, when he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he mentions that Jesus was there in creation, and that he was active in creation, the next verse in verse 4 says, in him was life, and that life was what? The light of all mankind. And I love verse 5, it says, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. In the Greek, the word overcome here is more probably literally translated as it can't comprehend it. It can't understand it. It can't get its arms and mind wrapped around it. And we think about this with light, as we just saw a moment ago. We shut most of the lights off. They weren't all off. You could still see a little bit. The, the, the darkness can't overcome light. It doesn't work that way. But we use lights to combat darkness. If we shut these off, it'll get dark in here. We have headlights on our cars so we can see after dark. We have street lights uh, guiding our, our path. We put night lights in our kids' bedrooms. Even when it's daylight outside, like we were just upstairs at the 8 o'clock service, there's massive windows on two sides of that room letting a ton of light in. We still have the lights on. When I go home later, I'll probably turn lights on in my house. Why do we do that? Because it's not quite bright enough. It's a little bit dark in there, but we like light. See, here's the, the thing about darkness. Darkness isn't like its own thing. Okay, darkness actually isn't anything at all. It's just the absence of light. When you pull the light away, the darkness is going to show up. But when you think about this battle, it's not really a battle at all, is it? Like you could say it like this, when the light comes on, darkness is gone. As soon as they turn these lights back on, any darkness disappeared. The only way darkness can defeat light is if the lights go out or if the light quits working. You might hear this idea that there's a battle of light and dark going on. There's no such thing. There's no contest between light and dark. Light will win it every single time. And in fact, even, I'll do this at home. I'm not really like afraid of the dark or anything. I'm not worried about something jumping out and getting me or anything like that. I'm scared of one thing in the dark, and that's what my children might have left on the floor that I might have to step around or over. And so, like, if I'm walking through my house, I'll flip the light switch on just so I can see what's there, and then I'll turn it right back off. And just that little instant of light will put an image in my mind that now I can navigate through here. I don't need the light to be on. I've, I've had it on just enough. I can see where I'm going, whether that's going to the stairs, whether that's coming out of uh, the bathroom after brushing my teeth, getting ready for bed and walking to my bed. I've got just enough light that I can see what's going on and I can get where I'm going. But too often we find ourselves in darkness and we can't find a light to go along with it. I mean, even to turn my little cell phone light on here to make a point earlier, I was fumbling around with it. And often that's what we'll do. We'll fumble around. We might, might drop your phone trying to get the light on. Then you can't see to find it. You know, you, we do this. That's where we'll find ourselves too often. 
is we'll find ourselves in a dark place, whether it's literal or whether it's emotional or, or spiritual or maybe it's just something internal. We find ourselves in a dark place and we can't find a light. John uses another word for this, and we see it in this story. He calls it blindness. This man that we're talking about here was born blind. He's physically, literally blind. But again, John is talking figurative as well, too. Literal blindness. It's something that I've never had to deal with. I, I wore glasses most of my life. I, I got my eyes fixed a few years ago. But I understand what it's like to have blurry vision, but I've never been blind. And as, as I was prepping for this this week, I was talking with, with one of our, our pastors on staff, and he said, hey, have you ever heard about non-24 syndrome? I said, no, so I look it up. And non-24 syndrome is something that many blind people struggle with. The idea of non-24 syndrome is your body doesn't sync with the moon and the sun. In other words, you don't know what time it is. And somebody who's physically blind and can't see is more susceptible to that because they don't know if the sun is up or the sun is down. So sometimes they'll want to go to bed at noon or they might want to wake up at 1 a.m. because they don't know unless somebody tells them what time it is. You all will get to experience this a little bit here in a few weeks. How many of you, once the time change happens and it's dark at 5 o'clock by like 7 or so, you're like, I'm kind of ready for bed. It doesn't really mean you're old or lazy or overworked. It means your body's telling you, hey, it's time to shut down. You're going to wake up at 5 a.m., but it's time to shut down now. That's natural and normal because we just get into that rhythm. This man has been born blind, and he has all the disorientation that might come with that. Yes, his other senses are probably very well refined, but he doesn't always know what's going on around him. But more than just the physical Blindness. This man is also socially and spiritually blind. He's an outcast. In the Jewish culture, again, if you had a, a physical ailment like this, you were an outcast. You weren't really wanted to be kept around in society because obviously you were a sinner or your parents were a sinner and you're not worthy of being with everybody else. So he's an outcast. He's a beggar. He's likely finding himself not just in physical blindness, but in a spiritual and emotional and maybe even a mental darkness as well too. And maybe you find yourselves in those today. I, I would say at some point, all of us have probably been in one of those spots at some point, or maybe you are now, and if not, you probably will be. It, it's just part of our lives. It's part of the human experience to find a time of darkness, to find a time of just feeling lost and isolated. But just like the man in the story here, Jesus enters the equation and things change. We've said throughout this series that when Jesus shows up, lives are transformed. Lives are changed physically and, and internally as well too. And no matter where you're at, no matter what kind of darkness you might be in, Jesus brings the light when he shows up. He just said in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This statement here in John chapter 8 Jesus probably said this and preached the sermon on this within just a day or two of what we're reading in John 9. These are the back-to-back stories in the story of Jesus. I don't know the exact timing. Probably wasn't the same day, but within just a day or two, most likely, Jesus has preached this sermon. And then he comes across somebody who's in darkness. See, here's why that's important to us. Our need for light is obvious because of what light does. Light represents the truth. Specifically, 
You could say it like this. Light exposes what is actually there. It shows us what is actually there. Again, why do I need to flick a light on before I walk through a room? I want to know what's in front of me. I want to know if there's something that I'm going to trip over or step on and stab me in the bottom of the foot. Uh, Several weeks ago, Brad used an illustration in a sermon about going fishing and, and staying out till it was dark and then trying to find his way back to his truck. Uh, I've done this when I hunt. I'll, I'll put one of those headlamps on because I've usually got my arms full of my gear and, and I always point the light about five feet in front of me. Number one, it's not going to shine all the way down the path, but about five feet in front of me. Why? Because that's where my next two steps are going. And I always want to know what my next two steps are. Am I about to step in like a gopher hole or something? Or am I about to trip on a rock? Am I going to run into a tree? I want to know what's right there. The light exposes what is actually there. When Jesus says he's the light of the world, what he is saying is I am showing you in front of you all the things that are good and true and honest and holy and pure. And he invites you to follow him so that you can see those things too. But darkness, on the other hand, he says it hates the light. He hates the, uh, hates the light because it exposes what darkness is trying to hide. Any of you that live kind of maybe outside of town, <clears throat> maybe you've got a little bit of property, you, you hear some kind of animal or something and you'll shine a light at it and you'll see, you'll see those eyes light up and the animal just freezes. Why? Because it needs the darkness. It, it's, it's more nocturnal. The light causes it just to freeze because it doesn't know what's coming. It's scared. It doesn't know what threat you might pose to it. That's how darkness views light. John 3, Jesus gives that great statement about how much God loves us, so much that he sent his son to die on the cross for us, that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. Well, a couple of verses later, look what he says about light and dark. Verse 19 of John 3, light has come into the world, but people loved the darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. I don't want a show of hands on this. I don't want, I don't, I don't want you guys to, to tell me anything on this, but probably all of us at some point have had some kind of sin going on in our lives. And when that happens, how many of you are very quick to say, hey, let me show you what I'm doing right now. Let me just run down. I'm doing this. I'm doing this. Oh, man, I'm really doing this. You don't do that. Why? Because you don't want anyone to know. You don't want anyone to know. You don't want your spouse to know or your parents to know or, or your kids to know or your boss to know. You certainly don't want your pastor to know or God to know. So you keep it hidden. You put it in darkness. Darkness is very good at covering things up until you shine a light on it. And that's where Jesus is warning us here. He's the light of the world. And when you follow him, you'll walk in the light with him. Darkness forces you to live a lie. I can just say, I've lived it. I've lived it. I'm sure some of you have too. Darkness forces you to live a lie, whether it's a lie that you have created to cover up your sin or whether it's the lie the enemy tells you in response to that that tells you you're not worthy of forgiveness, you're not worthy of love, you don't deserve any acceptance whatsoever. You just need to go be a blind outcast. That's what darkness does. And that's why darkness hates the light. In this story, this man has lived in literal darkness his whole life. Not necessarily living in evil. I'm, I don't know what this man's done in his past. Jesus said he's not blind because he's sinned. He, he said that, that he hasn't sinned. It doesn't mean he's perfect. 
but this man is, at least it seems like, living as honorable a life as he can. I don't know what he understands about God. I don't know what he understands about Jesus. It doesn't really give that context. We kind of have to fill that gap in ourselves a little bit here. All we know is that when Jesus shows up, this man's life changes, and it changes radically, and it changes quickly. And what do we do with all that? Well, kind of like we've been doing in this series, I look at the story and then I come back and think how we can, we can take from it. We can look at those ripples and, and what can we get out of this. And I've just got two today. Just two quick ones that I want to look at today to see how can we still learn as the church and as followers from this healing. Here's our first take or first thought from this. It's that religious pride causes spiritual blindness. Religious pride causes spiritual blindness. To this point, all we have read is the healing. Jesus shows up, he spits, he makes mud, rubs it in this guy's eyes, he washes him, he can see. That's a pretty cool story right there. But then in verse 13, the Pharisees show up. I said we'd come back to this, and it's a problem because verse 14 lets us know this took place on the Sabbath. Here we go again, right? Chapter 9, verse 16, says some of the Pharisees said, this man, talking about Jesus, is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. It's kind of the same song, different verse. We saw this a few weeks ago. I think it was three or four weeks ago, we talked about the healing of the, the crippled beggar at the pool of Bethesda. When uh, he was healed, but all the Pharisees could see was a violation of the law. And this isn't the only times that we see this. Jesus has no problem working on the Sabbath. There's several other stories. There's one in the other Gospels about Jesus and his disciples walking through a grain field and picking a handful of wheat and then like threshing it with their fingers and, and eating it. And the picking it was fine. The eating it was fine. The threshing it with your fingers, uh uh-oh, you're working on the Sabbath now. You're in violation of the law. And Jesus, in that particular instance, gives him this great line in Mark chapter 2 when he says, the Sabbath, was made, uh, from, uh, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath was created by God for us, for you, to protect our relationship with God. We weren't created to protect it. And I told you this, the same thing about the church. The church was created to bring all of us together to help... In, in, in strengthen and, and, and protect our walks with Christ. It's not the other way around. Your walk with Christ doesn't exist to protect the church. The church exists to protect that walk and that relationship that we have with Jesus. But the Pharisees are determined to prove that this man, this healing isn't true, it's not accurate, because this isn't the way God wants things done. They're, they're determined to prove this. They question this man. We're going to read about this more in a few minutes. They even question his parents. They're trying to convince him it didn't actually happen. They want to do anything they can to discredit the work of God and the healing that just took place. I said this a few weeks ago. The number one sin of the Pharisees is that they were worshiping their religion more than they were worshiping their God. And I warned us then, let's make sure we are not doing that. That we never get guilty of that because it's so easy for it to potentially happen. This is exactly what's happening again with these Pharisees. Maybe it's the same guys. Maybe it's a different group of them. I, I don't know doesn't really say that. But you might remember back to my first sermon I preached here. If you don't, it was last summer when I got up here and I preached the story of Zacchaeus. If you remember Zacchaeus, if you don't know Zacchaeus, he was the short little guy in Luke 19. He's a tax collector in Jericho. 
and he wants to see Jesus. Jesus shows up. There's, he's coming through. It's almost kind of like a parade. There's just a ton of people that are crushing in to see Jesus, and he wants to see them, but they don't really care for Zacchaeus because he's one of them, yet he's a big-time sinner. He's a tax collector. That's the worst of the worst. And so they just kind of keep him pushed back. So Zacchaeus climbs up in a tree so that he can get a good uh, view of Jesus coming down the road. And, and I, I, I said that because I think that's what we need to remember as a church. I don't want to get into that sermon. It's online if you want to go find it. But we need to remember, especially when people are lost or struggling or trying to find that light in their lives, often what people need most in life is a clear view of Jesus. And as a church, we have to make a choice. Are we going to help people with that or are we going to hinder people with that? Are we going to say, sorry, you don't do things the way we want them done. So you've got to wait your turn. Or sorry, you know what? You can't bring that sin to Jesus right now. Because I've been waiting for a long time to see Jesus. You, you go take care of your sin and then you can, come, you can come see Jesus. We've talked again through this whole series that when Jesus shows up, lives are transformed. But he can't transform somebody's life if that person doesn't get to experience Jesus. The Pharisees have, have kept him away. Jesus has shown up. So church, what are we going to do? Are we going to help people make that experience? Are we going to help people meet Jesus? So that maybe, just maybe, he'll transform that life like he transformed yours, and like he transformed mine? Or are we going to continue to be a barricade? We've got to be careful with what we do. Religious pride can cause spiritual blindness, so we need to be aware of that. Here's our second thought from this story. Our own spiritual path is one from blindness to sight. All of us, at one point in time, were blind whether we realized it or not. And I would say we probably didn't realize it, because when you're spiritually blind, usually you don't even know that's a thing. So you just convince yourself everything's fine. You can see just fine. Everything's good. I, cre- I, I crafted this. I created this. I came up with this life that I have. You don't really register with the, the concept that you're spiritually blind or spiritually lost until suddenly you can look back and realize it after you've come to Jesus. This man goes from literal physical blindness to sight, but that's just a representation of what's taking place inside on him. We don't know much about this guy. We, I don't know that we hear anything else about him in Scripture unless he's given a name later that we weren't told about. But what I love about this story is this man is, is at the beginning of it, he's a beggar, he's an outcast, he's off to the side, and as the story progresses, and as the chapter progresses, he gets bold, he's going toe-to-toe with the Pharisees to the point where they don't even have a comeback for him. In fact, in verse 13, it says that the Pharisees question him, and, and they push on him, and, and they ask, you know, who did this, and are, are you sure you were really actually blind to begin with? And you know, they really start to, to like, kind of twist the knife on him a little bit. And then in verse 18, they go question his parents. Is this actually your son? I don't think this is actually your son. He really probably wasn't blind to begin with. I think you just imagine that. Like, again, they're doing whatever they can to chip away and convince them that this didn't happen. Verse 24, they come back and they question this man again. He's a little stronger now. He's a little wiser now. And in fact, I love it in verse 27, as the, the, the Pharisees are coming after him, he goes, hey, do you guys want to go be Jesus' disciples too? This guy doesn't even know who Jesus is yet. And he's inviting people to come to Jesus. So what's their comeback when he asks them that? They have no comeback, none. So verse 28, it says they just insult him. They just tell him that he's, that he's dumb. And they're like, no, we're, we're disciples of Moses. 
Not disciples of whoever this joker you're following right now is. And in verse 30, he comes back and puts the hammer down on them. And they have no response to him, so they just kick him out. They just kick him out. And I read this story from two different perspectives. Because I think as a church, we are both parts at times. I think there's times we can be the Pharisees. And we forget that we once went from blindness to sight. And somebody questions us and we don't have a response. So our response is just we insult them and we throw them out. Because we don't know how to answer them. Or we're offended by whatever question they asked us. And so sometimes it's just easier to call somebody a heretic and show them the door. Now there are times that that's biblically necessary. But often we wield that weapon when we don't need to. But there's also many times in our world today, we're the blind man. And we see this theme here of, of the Pharisees are trying to trick him. They're trying to convince him that he's wrong. That all this stuff he's preaching about couldn't possibly be accurate and couldn't possibly be true. If that sounds familiar, it's because that's, that's what we're living right now. That's the, that's the world the church is living in right now. We have a world that's rejected God, rejected Christ, pushed itself further away from him. And all they can respond to people of faith and the church with is, you guys are just crazy. There's no God sitting on a cloud up there. All that's just made up. You guys are just crazy. We're told a lie. And we're convinced that it's the truth to the point where so many churches now are twisted in what they believe because they don't know what to believe. They look and think, well, maybe I've been reading the Bible wrong all these years. Maybe that's not actually what this verse means. See, when truth becomes relative, there are no more rules. There is no more right or wrong. Once truth becomes relative, whatever I say, whatever you say, that's, that's just how it is. The Pharisees are using their power to create that lie, to increase their power, to convince people that them and only them can truly define the truth. Because they're God's appointed people. They're the only ones that can actually tell you what it really is. And when that happens and you buy that lie, you actually start to convince yourself of what's true and what's not. You're creating your own blindness whether you realize it or not. And folks, that is why it is so important to remember who the light of the world really is. Because remember, what is it that light does? It exposes what's actually there. It exposes truth. When you walk in light, when you follow Jesus, you're able to distinguish, to discern right and wrong better, truth and falsehood better. You're less likely to believe the lie. And here's the cool thing. Walking with Jesus will not only show you the light, it'll keep you there. It'll keep you in the light. Sometimes when you're walking with a group through a dark place, not everybody needs a light. The person who's leading needs the light. And as long as they're leading you to the right place and you follow them, you're going to be safe. But it's when you start to look away a little bit. You start to drift. That's typically when it comes in to play here. Because see, here's the thing. We have an enemy. We have an enemy who loves to deceive. I, I think Satan is two things when it comes to dealing with people of faith. He's smart and he's patient. He's not going to come right at you with something. He knows that might not work. He's not just going to shut your light off. If your light gets shut off, you're going you're to notice that. But what happens? 
The light's shining right here where you need it. You take a little bit of a step. You can still see the light. It's still pretty bright. Take a little bit more of a step. It's still pretty bright, right? A little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. Suddenly the light has faded so slowly you haven't noticed. Light hasn't changed. You just quit following it. You quit paying attention to it. That's how the enemy loves to work. Staying with Jesus, following him, that'll make you less likely to believe what you have heard. This man has sat and listened to the Pharisees for years. He's sat in the temple courts for years. He knows their game. He knows what they're all about. I'm sure they've even come and preached to him and taught directly to him at times. But now he's experienced Jesus. He's experienced Jesus. And here's the cool part of experiencing Jesus. You do not have to have him figured out to follow him. You don't have to know everything about him to believe in him. I mean, just look at this man here, this blind man we're talking about in this story. Look at the progression of how he comes to understand Jesus over the course of this conversation. In verse 11, he refers to him as the man they call Jesus. In verse 17, he calls him a prophet. By verse 33, he's acknowledging this man is from God. And then the Pharisees leave and Jesus comes back. In verse 38, he calls him Lord and he worships him. Folks, it doesn't matter which one of those you're at today. Maybe you're here for the first time and you're just coming to hear about this man they call Jesus. And you're more curious about him because you've heard about him. Maybe you think he's a prophet. Man, he's a, he's a phenomenal teacher. He's a great historical figure. One of, the, one of the best people in history. Maybe that's where you're at. Maybe you're on that third rung thinking, well, I think Jesus is, is God or has something to do with God. And I want to learn more about him. Or maybe you're at that bottom rung and you've declared him Lord. You've made him the savior of your life. Wherever you're at on that, the only thing I ask is you just keep walking forward with it. And you keep trusting him a little bit more. Because here's the cool thing. When you believe in him, when you experience him, you're going to begin to see him for who he truly is. And when you see Jesus for who he truly is, it becomes easier to declare him Lord becomes easier to give your life to him. This man was born blind. He was an outcast. And, and what's funny about this is because he's an outcast already, he knows what that's all about. Guess what the, the Pharisees are threatening him with? We're going to kick you out. And he's like, I've been kicked out my whole life. <laughs> Bring it on. I don't care. You're not doing anything new to me. Church, we need to remember something. When we walk in light with Jesus, when we follow him, and we declare him as truth, we are setting ourselves up to become outcasts. We need to be okay with that. We need to be okay with that. Because here's the truth of it. You might get cast out in this world by your friends, by your family, by your, your social circle, maybe people you work with. You might get cast out from this world, but we were not created for this world. We were created for a kingdom that is here but not here yet. It will one day come, and that's, the, that, that's, that's who we were created to be. It's where we were created to walk. Darkness will do anything it can to convince you that that is not true. Darkness will do anything it can to make you believe that it is true. But Jesus is the true light. And the one, the only one, who can truly open your eyes to what is pure and holy and good to follow God. So here's kind of your takeaway today. It's, it's pretty straightforward, pretty simple. 
Trust in Jesus. Trust in him to lead you to the light. Trust in him to show you the true path. Uh, You don't have to see the whole path. That's what faith is all about. Faith is is not seeing the entire path, but, but trusting Jesus enough to start walking on it anyway. Not knowing what's out there, but but knowing he'll be with you when you face it. That he'll lead you in the right direction. I I love this because this whole image that I've mentioned many, many times today, that's our world. That's our life. Going from dark to light is a path that if you accept Christ as your savior, that's a path that you're starting on, but it's also a path that'll keep you from falling back into that darkness. I I was writing this this week and I just kept hearing One of the most famous hymns of all time popping in my head. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was what? Was blind, but now I see. Father, we're so grateful for your son. We're grateful that he came to this earth for us to become one of us, to show us, God, how to become more like you. God, I pray today, wherever everybody is, whatever spot they're finding themselves in, if it's a spot of darkness, if it's a spot of loneliness, if it's a spot of rejection, God, whatever has pushed them away, you would show them. You would show them your son. And God, that he doesn't bring the light, he is the light that we need that will keep us from following the wrong path. God, that will keep us from feeling rejected and, and stuck in our sin, that he's the light that frees us from that. So God, I pray today all across this room, pray for folks online who are watching, that anyone who is struggling with that, you would just remind them of where you are and who you are. God, we're so grateful for Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. I'm going to step into a time of communion. If you didn't grab one earlier, there's some over here or over on the sidewall on both sides and in the very back. As we take this today, I'm I just kind of reminded, we, we open this every week. It's a little piece of bread, a little cup of juice that represent the body and the blood of Jesus. But as we, we stop and take this, we're always kind of reminded of what communion is. It's what we call a sacrament. It's something that is more than just something we do. I say this all the time. We don't do this because it's tradition or habit or ritual. We do this because we pause to honor God. We pause to remember God. You come to a time of communion and it's a time of reflection and thought. And one of my professors always said it's, it's, it's reflection in four directions. It's inward. This is where you can look at your heart. I, I sometimes use the phrase recalibrate. My wife doesn't like that phrase, but it's a chance to Examine your heart. It's a chance to give that all to God. You can ask for forgiveness and confess your sins to God at any point in time. This isn't a church where you have to do it right here, right now. But this is an opportunity to do that and start off this week and start off the next few minutes with a clean heart. So you look and reflect inward. You reflect outward and upward to God and out to others. To connect yourself to God and connect yourself to others. We look back and we reflect back at what he did on the cross for us. Going to the cross, giving up his body and his blood to sacrifice for our sins, to redeem and restore us to God. And we reflect forward. 
for the promise that he will be with us always. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. And one of these days, he'll reclaim the church as his own. And he'll put his new kingdom here to work. So as we take this this morning, I would just invite you and encourage you to come to the Lord, to cast everything that you brought in this morning aside, all your worries, all your cares, just leave that alone for, for a minute or two and just spend time with God. Father, we're so grateful for your son and for what he did on the cross for us. Pray that in these next moments, you would bless us as we honor and bless you. In Jesus' name.